Okay, this is our final discussion for this course and we're going to discuss percutaneous tube management. This class is actually a component of both the wound course and the ostomy course because a number of these tubes are actually types of ostomies, but you're commonly consulted as a wound nurse. So here's what we're going to cover. We're going to explain the importance of two-point stabilization and prevention of complications for percutaneous tubes. We're going to describe options for stabilization of percutaneous tubes at the abdominal surface to include silicone discs, commercial devices, and use of sutures placed through the flange of a wafer for a two-piece pouching system. We'll describe options for managing the following complications, hypergranulation tissue, peritubular skin breakdown, leakage, and we will discuss guidelines for pouching around a leaking tube. We'll discuss considerations and guidelines for irrigation of biliary and nephrostomy tubes and explain why aspiration is usually contraindicated. And finally, we'll discuss criteria and guidelines for replacement of a gastrostomy tube at the bedside by a wound care nurse. Helps go the right way. Okay, so the chapter that you want to review in the core curriculum is chapter 35, which again will provide you with additional resource information. So let's talk first about commonly used percutaneous tubes. We're going to talk about four types. First of all, gastrostomy tubes. So we've all taken care of patients with G-tubes. We know that they are used sometimes for long-term decompression. More commonly, they're used for feeding. So if you have a patient who has trouble getting food from his mouth or her mouth to the stomach, but the stomach and the bowel will work, you can use a gastrostomy tube. So patients with esophageal strictures, patients with swallowing difficulties, patients with dementia can all be, all be managed nutritionally with gastrostomy tubes. Now, there are different types. The major types, the most commonly used, are balloon-tipped silicone catheters. We see a lot of those, and we're going to talk more about those. We also see a lot of PEG tubes. So PEG tubes are polyethylene tubes that have soft silicone bumpers for retention at the gastric wall. PEG tubes are used a lot because they're easy to place with a minimally invasive procedure. So what's involved in PEG tube placement? Break it down. Percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy. So you start with the endoscopist. The endoscopist performs, it, you know, takes the gastroscope and goes down into the stomach, evaluates the stomach, and picks the best site for the tube. He uses the light on the scope to illuminate that area. The surgical assistant numbs the area, creates a small incision, pushes in a trocar, and then pushes in either a heavy silk thread or a wire. So now I've got a tube going into the stomach, a silk thread or a wire going into the stomach. The endoscopist grasps the silk suture or the wire with the snare and pulls it up and out the mouth. So now I've got this long tube, it's like a long piece of dental floss, it extends from here to here. They can now attach the tube to the wire or to the thread, and then the assistant can pull the thread or the wire down and out and pull the tube with it. And there's a soft silicone bumper that secures this, 
tube at the gastric wall. There's also a skin level device. Uh, the most commonly used one is the MIT key. This is used a lot in the pediatric population. It's usually placed into an established tract. So you already have an established tract into the stomach. There's a little measuring device that you can use to determine the distance from the abdominal surface to the gastric wall. Then you select the device that is the right length. So if you've got three centimeter distance from the gastric wall to the skin surface, you need a three centimeter long tube. You place the tube, you inflate the balloon, and then the device is designed to sit flat against the skin. There's a one-way valve, so that keeps gastric contents from coming back. When you want to use the tube for feeding, there's a little adapter tube. You plug it in, it opens the one-way valve. You can feed the child, disconnect the um, adapter, and the one-way valve is again operational. It's a great choice for infants and children because tubes get pulled out. Skin level devices typically do not. We also use a lot of jejunostomy tubes. So the difference in a gastrostomy tube and a jejunostomy tube, of course, the major difference is where is it? So you use gastrostomy tubes for people who have relatively normal gastric function. They can tolerate bolus feeds. Nothing wrong with the pylorus. They can empty normally into the jejunum, the duodenum and the jejunum. But what if you have a patient who has gastroparesis or there are issues with the pylorus and they don't do a good job of passing nutrients from the stomach into the small bowel? Then they're gonna do a lot better with a jejunostomy. Also, what if you have a patient who tends to aspiration pneumonia? then you don't want to feed into the stomach, you'd rather feed into the jejunum. So jejunostomy is placed into the jejunum for nutritional support, which is the optimal site for absorption of, of most nutrients, and of course, significantly reduces the risk of aspiration because now you're past the gastric pylorus. You can get a GJ tube, and many times our patients do have a GJ tube, so that they pass the GJ tube into the stomach. It is secured at the gastric level with a balloon, and then there's a jejunal extension that migrates down into the small bowel. If you have a GJ tube, then you have the option to use the gastrostomy component for decompression. So if you have a patient with gastroparesis, a lot of problems with nausea and vomiting, you can connect the gastric limb to drainage and decompress the stomach. And at the same time, you can feed into the jejunum. So you can have a straight jejunostomy tube, or you can have a double tube with a gastric limb and a jejunal limb. Now, one thing to know about jejunostomy tubes, they're typically secured at the skin level with sutures. They are not usually secured at the intestinal level. So when you think about gastrostomy tubes, if I go back, gastrostomy tubes are going to be secured at the gastric wall by a balloon or by a little soft disc. But a jejunal tube 
is typically not secured at the intestinal level because when you think about it, the diameter of the jejunum is only one to one and a half inches. And if you inflate a balloon, you could potentially cause some degree of obstruction. So typically, jejunostomy tubes are secured primarily at the skin level, and it's critically important to maintain stabilization at the skin level. So we'll come back to that. Now, in talking about management of gastrostomy or PEG tubes or jejunostomy tubes, you're going to clean the site clean the site daily with mild soap and warm water. In the past, people used peroxide a lot. Peroxide is not necessary unless you have old dried blood. So all you need to do is just clean with soap and water. Keep the skin dry. Critically important to stabilize the tube at the skin level with that little bumper that comes with most of the tubes. So you think about the tube is secured internally. Look at the uh, illustration. You've got the balloon tip or the soft bumper that is stabilizing the tube internally at the gastric wall. Then the skin level bumper should sit right at the skin surface. And if you do that, if you have that two-point stabilization, so it's secured internally, it's secured externally, you're gonna stop that in and out and back and forth migration of the tube that causes so many problems. So current recommendations are you should limit the laxity between the tube and the abdominal surface to 0.5 to one centimeter. In other words, there should be very little space between the skin and the bumper. How should you dress that newly created gastrostomy or jejunostomy? You can use a split gauze dressing or a foam dressing that goes between the skin level bumper and the abdominal wall itself. That will manage any exudate and it will protect the skin. If the tube is sutured into place, obviously you will not be placing a dressing. Another thing that's very beneficial if the tube is not sutured into place, it's beneficial to gently rotate the tube daily. When you give site care, just gently rotate the tube. That breaks up any scar tissue formation around the tube that can make it hard to remove the tube when it's time to replace it or to change it out. If the tube is sutured into place, you can't dress under it and you can't rotate it. Very important, if you have a balloon-tipped tube, you're going to deflate and reinflate weekly because what we found is that, especially with the silicone tubes, those balloons gradually leak down. So let's say you start out with a 10 milliliter balloon. So it's inflated with 10 milliliters. Two weeks later, you're thinking you still have 10 milliliters. You probably have five. Four weeks later, you might have one, and then it's easy for the tube to just slide out. So the way you prevent that is you just set up a weekly protocol where you deflate and then reinflate with the recommended volume of water. The third type of commonly used percutaneous tube is your biliary tube, and these are small polyurethane tubes they're un inserted under fluoroscopic guidance into the biliary tree, most commonly into the common bile duct. They're used to decompress and provide drainage of bile. 
in patients who have stenosis or some kind of obstruction of the bile duct. So it could be a patient who has pancreatic cancer obstructing the ducts. Maybe they have um, a lot of gallstones obstructing. Anything that causes stenosis or obstruction can cause bile to back up into the liver. If you get stasis of bile in the liver, you get rapidly progressive liver damage. So we never want that to happen. So if there's poor drainage of bile from the liver, through the bile duct, into the small intestine, placement of a biliary tube can provide at least temporary management. So under CT guidance, they insert the tube. It's usually a T-shaped tube. So the T end goes into the bile duct, and then the other end comes out the skin and is connected to drainage. So it's secured internally via the T-shaped configuration, and then is secured at skin level with a commercial stabilizing device. Now to manage biliary tubes, you do want to keep it secured at skin level. That keeps, helps prevent dislodgement, helps prevent kinking. You're going to do site care and dressing changes just weekly and as needed. In many settings, they do routinely flush biliary tubes. So when you read in the literature, there's controversy about this. But remember that you want to maintain patency of that tube. You want the bowel draining through the tube into the drainage bag. And a lot of times, there's some sediment in the biliary drainage. So in many settings, the protocol uh, calls for once daily or twice daily flushing. If you are flushing the biliary tube, you want to do it under strict sterile technique because the biliary tree is sterile. You want to limit the volume of irrigant to no more than 10 milliliters. Some centers use only five. You're going to instill it very slowly. You usually do not aspirate. You just reconnect to the drainage bag. The reason you do not aspirate, remember that one end of the T-tube is pointed toward the duodenum and you never want to risk aspirating small bowel contents up into the biliary tree. If you have trouble flushing, if it causes pain, if you get leakage, you're always going to notify the physician and typically they will reevaluate placement. And then you're going to educate the patient about routine care, about signs of infection and symptoms of blockage because most patients go home with these tubes. Finally, nephrostomy tubes. So you know that nephrostomy tubes are placed through the flank, through the skin and soft tissue into the pelvis of the kidney. It's done in interventional radiology so that they can visualize placement and know that they have the tube exactly where they want it. It's done to provide renal decompression, to provide drainage of urine when the ureter is partially or completely obstructed. Typically, nephrostomy tubes are secured within the renal pelvis by a pigtail configuration, which I think you can see on this slide. So it holds it in place um, within the renal pelvis, and then we secure it at skin level by a commercial stabilizing device. So in managing nephrostomy tubes, again, we want to stabilize the tube. We want to prevent dislodgement. We want to prevent kinking. We're going to clean the site. Typically, we dress only with a dry, sterile dressing. 
Usually it's changed daily as needed. You could also do gauze in a transparent adhesive dressing. If you use the transparent adhesive dressing, you would change less frequently, typically every three to four days. On a long-term basis, once the site is very well healed, most nephrologists will reduce dressing change frequency to twice weekly and as needed. One thing we always want to teach our patients is the importance of hydration to keep the urine dilute. That helps to prevent obstruction and helps to prevent infection. So we want to recommend typically a minimum of 1,500 milliliters in a day, ideally at least 2,000 unless there's some contraindication. What about irrigation? Again, that's somewhat controversial. The renal pelvis is sterile. We don't want to cause any problems. We don't want to introduce bacteria. But we also know that urine frequently has sediment and that it's critically important to maintain patency. So you're going to do this with order from the managing physician only. But in many situations, you will find that you are irrigating the nephrostomy tube very carefully. So typically, you use no more than five to 10 milliliters. The renal pelvis cannot hold a lot and you don't want to stretch the renal pelvis. You instill very slowly, we've already said, very strict sterile technique. You do not force it. Once you flush, you connect the tube back to drainage. You do not aspirate because it's painful. So whether or not you're doing irrigations of nephrostomy tubes depends on the patient's situation and on physician orders, but you should definitely know how to do that. You should know the guidelines, low volume, strict sterile technique, no aspiration. If you have a patient with a long-standing nephrostomy tube, some patients have nephrostomy tubes for life, then typically the tube is changed out every three months. They come into interventional radiology and it's changed out um, under radiologic guidance. Now we're going to talk about the common complications of percutaneous tubes and how to prevent them. We're going to talk about dislodgement, skin irritation, cellulitis, hypergranulation, leakage, and obstruction or blockage. We never want the tube to fall out. So almost all tubes have internal stabilization devices, bumpers, discs, or balloons. You have that for G-tubes. You have a T-tube configuration for the biliary tube. You have a pigtail for nephrostomy tubes. For J-tubes, you do not have that and you're dependent on your skin level stabilization device. For G-tubes or skin level devices with balloon tips, it's critical to set up a protocol where every week you deflate the balloon and you reinflate according to manufacturer guidelines. That helps to prevent unrecognized deflation and spontaneous dislodgement. You want to routinely use skin level stabilization devices for J-tubes, that's critical. You can use skin sutures. You can use a commercial stabilizing device in addition to the skin sutures. You can take a wafer for a two-piece ostomy system. You can place sutures through the flange and you can tie the sutures around the tube to stabilize the tube very effectively at skin level. 
We'll talk about this more and demonstrate this and you'll practice this when you come for bridge week. All tubes, you wanna make sure that staff follows careful management. So when we're turning the patient, we wanna know where our tubes are, where the tubing is. We don't wanna catch it and pull it. What about skin irritation? Skin irritation most commonly is caused by leakage. So we're gonna talk about routine care. We're gonna talk about figuring out the causative factors and then we're gonna talk about management. So we've already said that routine care involves daily cleansing just with mild soap and water or saline, keeping the skin dry, protecting the skin with gauze or a foam dressing, making sure that any skin level device is not burrowing into the skin. If we have skin irritation, we wanna figure out what caused it. Very commonly, it's leakage. And then I have to figure out how much leakage do I have? How am I going to manage that? Usually I end up pouching around the tube. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Crusting is a universal approach to management of minor skin irritation. So you could sprinkle on ostomy powder dust off the excess, spray it with your liquid barrier film, that would be very appropriate. You could use dressings. You could use a hydrocolloid around the tube. You could use um, a foam dressing around the tube, so long as the tube is not sutured in place. What about cellulitis? Now, cellulitis is not common, but you could get an infection involving the periwinkle tissue it's more likely to occur in an immunosuppressed patient or a patient with diabetes. And the triggering factor is typically initial placement or replacement because it is an invasive procedure. Signs and symptoms you know very well. You get heat, you get induration, you get edema, and you may get purulent drainage as you see here. What can we do about that? We can't fix that. We assess it. We notify the physician, the patient may very well require antibiotic therapy. But we can manage hypergranulation tissue. We want to prevent that from occurring. So prevention all goes back to maintaining that consistent two-point stabilization. If the tube is stabilized here and stabilized here, it does not move in and out. It does not move back and forth you do not get that constant irritation of the tissue that results in hypergranulation tissue formation. So make sure that the tube is stabilized internally and at skin level and is not moving. If you're consulted to see a patient with hypergranulation tissue, you wanna treat it because hypergranulation tissue is frequently painful, frequently bleeds, and oozes clear fluid all the time. In adults, we typically take a silver nitrate stick and cauterize very carefully. We don't usually want to do that in an infant or a child, and many times we have to teach the parent how to manage this. So in infants and young children, we typically use mid-potency steroids, which is also a very effective approach to taking down hypergranulation tissue and we would teach them to apply that once a day. Typically, we use triamcinolone. 
What about leakage? Leakage is a very common issue. It's almost always due to tract erosion. But what is it that causes tract erosion? Because when they place the tube, they create a very small opening in the gastric wall, in the soft tissue, and in the abdominal wall. The opening matches the tube. So then why is it that weeks later I have a big hole and I'm pouring gastric contents in tube feedings? And it's because of tract erosion. And what causes it is failure of two-point stabilization. So if I do not have that tube locked into place, every time this patient moves, coughs, laughs, sneezes, the tube is moving in and out and back and forth, in and out, back and forth, and you get progressive tract erosion. Once the hole in the stomach is bigger than the tube, gastric contents start to leak around the tube and start to cause massive skin irritation at the abdominal surface. The most effective approach is to pouch a leaking tube. So you're gonna cut an ostomy pouch out to clear the opening in the skin. If I have a three-quarter inch opening in the skin, I'm gonna cut the ostomy pouch out to at least seven eighths inch, maybe an inch. Then I'm gonna take a little hydrocolloid wafer disc, usually about three inches in diameter, so something like this, and I'm going to apply that hydrocolloid disc to the anterior surface of the pouch. It's gonna reinforce the pouch material because the next thing I'm gonna do is take scissors and cut an X in the front wall of the pouch. That's going to allow me to feed the tube through the front wall of the pouch. Then I'm gonna clean the skin. I'm gonna treat any skin damage with crusting. I'm gonna peel off the backing to the pouch. I'm gonna feed the tube in and through the front wall of the pouch, through that X. So I've gotta work it through. Then I can press my pouch into place and I can use some combination of barrier rings, paste strips, paste, and tape to secure that opening in the front wall of the pouch, to seal it off so that I don't get any leakage through there. This might make sense to you. It might not make sense to you, but when you come for Bridge Week, you will practice doing this. So I guarantee you when you get through the program, it will make sense. And it's really important because there will be many situations in which you need to pouch around a leaking tube. The last complication is obstruction or blockage. This applies primarily to G-tubes and J-tubes where we're providing feedings, we're providing medications. Your number one prevention measure is to flush the tube thoroughly with water before and after each medication because medications can interact with each other to cause clumping. Medications can interact with formula to cause clot formation. So you've been getting feedings. I'm about to give you your medications. I'm gonna discontinue the feeding, flush the tube. Give you your first medication, flush the tube. Second medication, flush. Third medication, flush, and then resume feedings. If it's already clogged, I can't give you your medications, I can't give you your feedings, nothing is going through. So here's the recommended protocol. First, milk the tubing to make sure that there's not any kind of mechanical blockage that you can break up manually. Then aspirate any fluid and take a 60 milliliter syringe, fill it with 10 milliliters of warm water, 
Now you're going to have a lot of force between this installation. So now you're going to try to push that 10 milliliters of warm water through the tube. You're hoping to break up any little clots that have formed, any little formula clots. So you've aspirated and now you're pushing in this 10 milliliters. Okay, so hopefully it works. And then you can resume feedings. What if it doesn't? Then the recommendation is to take one pancreatic enzyme tablet, one sodium bicarbonate tablet, crush them, mix them with five milliliters of warm water, instill the five milliliters of fluid into the tube, clamp the tube, wait for 20 to 30 minutes, and then try to flush the tube with warm water. Why does this usually work? because the sodium bicarbonate neutralizes the acidity, which stops coagulation of protein in the formula and neutralizes gastric acid. And the pancreatic enzyme helps to break down any clotted formula that is blocking the tube. So that's almost always effective. If not, you're gonna have to notify the physician and typically the tube will have to be changed. The last thing we're going to talk about is bedside replacement of G-tubes by the RN, especially the wound care RN. Now, in many settings, you will be covered to do bedside replacement of gastrostomy tubes under specific conditions. So this is indicated when you have a well-established tract into the stomach. That's usually when you've had a tube in place for at least four to six weeks and when the tube is secured internally with either a balloon that you can deflate or with a very soft traction removable dome. If the tube has a soft traction removable dome, it's usually marked on the tube. It will say may remove at bedside or traction removable. If you're not sure and you cannot verify, you do not proceed contraindications to bedside replacement if there's a rigid internal stabilizing device. You're not going to pull that through the abdominal wall. It's either going to be removed in the um, gastric lab or sometimes they'll just cut it off at skin level and allow it to migrate through the GI tract, but you're not going to pull it through. If you have a PEG tube and you're not sure what kind of internal stabilizer was used and you can't find out, you would not try to do bedside replacement. And we don't typically do bedside replacement if there's significant gastric pathology such as bleeding. You have to have an established policy and procedure. And once you have removed the old tube, placed the new tube, you have to verify appropriate placement via x-ray prior to resumption of feedings. Now, attached to this class, on Canvas, you will see a sample policy procedure for replacing the G-tube at the bedside by the wound nurse. So in summary, commonly used percutaneous tubes are gastrostomy, jejunostomy, biliary, and nephrostomy. There are a number of complications associated with percutaneous tube management. Dislodgement is a common issue. We can prevent that by stabilizing the tube hopefully both internally and externally. If it's a balloon tip device, we want to deflate and reinflate weekly. 
And when we're turning patients, we want to be very careful not to put traction on the tube or the device. What about skin breakdown around the tube? We want to provide routine skin care to keep the skin clean and dry. Very helpful to use gauze or foam dressings to protect the skin from the stabilizing device itself. We want to assure two-point stabilization to prevent leakage. If we see indications of cellulitis, we should report because the patient may need antibiotic therapy. If there's hypergranulation tissue, we want to intervene to stop in and out and back and forth migration. We want to treat the hypergranular tissue either with silver nitrate for adults or mid-potency steroids for children. Leakage is probably the most common reason for a wound nurse consult. If you have significant leakage, you're going to need to pouch around that leaking tube, and we'll practice that. And finally, if you have obstruction of a feeding tube, you're gonna try warm water irrigation. If that doesn't work, you're going to try uh, sodium bicarb, pancreatic enzyme slurry, see if you can break up any clotted formula. If that doesn't work, you're gonna notify the physician and replace the tube. And that does it for PERT tube management. Thank you very much. It actually does it for the course. So congratulations and thank you.